Today's scripture reading is Matthew eight fourteen through 17. It says, When Jesus came into Peter's home, he saw his mother-in-law lying sick in bed with a fever. He touched her hand, and the fever left her, and she got up and waited on him. When evening came, they brought to him many who were demon-possessed, and he cast out the spirits with a word and healed all who were ill. This was to fulfill what was spoken through Isaiah the prophet. He himself took our infirmities and carried away our diseases. It's, it's been a long time since, since I mentioned this. In fact, I, I looked back and checked. Uh, it was June, last time I mentioned this, uh, that this book that we've been studying since June, Matthew, is, is kind of the royal gospel. And what I mean by that, it... Matthew goes out of his way to make sure we know from the beginning that Jesus is a king. During the first sermon in Matthew, I mentioned, you know, the gospel of Matthew is not the original title. You know, people added that later. Matthew didn't give it a title. But if he did, something like, here comes the king would have been appropriate. The Old Testament had promised for hundreds and hundreds, thousands of years, that God was going to send a special king, another king, to the nation of Israel, from the tribe of Judah, a king who was a descendant of David. And throughout the Old Testament, one of the major themes running through the Old Testament is who would that special descendant of Eve be who would crush the serpent, reverse the curse? And, and the Old Testament gives sort of hints or clues so that when he showed up, people could recognize him for who he was or who he is. Things like this. We're told that he would be born in Bethlehem. He would be born of a virgin. This king would be a descendant of Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Judah, David, Solomon. He would be preceded by a forerunner or a herald who would announce his coming. Those are just a few of the things that had been promised about this special king that in Greek we call Christ. In in, uh, in Hebrew, it's Messiah. Same position. It's a royal title. Then for 400 years, no more hints were given. 400 years is a long time. No more clues as to that Messiah was still coming or what he would look like. And I think that's why God ordained that Matthew would be the first book in what we call the New Testament. It wasn't the first book written in the New Testament, for sure. But it begins with these words. The record of the genealogy of Jesus, the Christ, or the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Matthew just like comes out with it. This book is about Jesus, and I'm telling you, he's the king the Old Testament promised. Matthew starts after he says this book's about Jesus, who's the Christ. He gives Jesus' royal lineage to let us know, hey, he he fits the pedigree of the Christ, because we can read his genealogy, and Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and David and Solomon are in there. Then, if you know the story, you know uh, a young woman, girl, probably we would call her, shows up pregnant while she's engaged 
And her husband, Joseph, what's he want to do? He wants to divorce her because he knows he's not the daddy. An angel comes and says, don't divorce her, Joseph. And then he quotes one of the, the angel quotes one of the, the biggest clues for knowing Messiah when we saw him. The angel says, go ahead and take Mary as your wife because God's done a miracle in her body. God has made her pregnant. And this has all happened so that what was spoken by the Lord through the prophet would be fulfilled. Behold, the virgin will conceive and bear a son. They will call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. He's the king. In Matthew... The first visitors that come to see Jesus are whom? The Magi from the east. Guess what they know? He's the king. Guess what Herod is scared of? That he might be the king. Guess what Herod's advisors tell Herod? He could be the king. Right place, right time. Matthew really Matthew mentions the kingdom of God more than any other of the other gospels. Jesus' first words of public ministry are repent. Why? Because the kingdom of heaven is near. Matthew goes out of his way to make sure we know Jesus are the king is the king. If for no other reason this would have been enough. <laughs> if he didn't tell us at the beginning. We sure couldn't tell by like reading about Jesus' life. Because if you knew anything about ancient kings, Jesus very much didn't look like one of those. I want to give you a little bit of a contrast between an ancient king and Jesus, the king of kings. Ancient kings, no matter what culture you go into, were surrounded by a relative amount of pomp and circumstance, formality, Major kings had what was called a, what we call the king's court. Ever hear that? The king's court. That was the lifestyle that happened around the king. The people who had permanent access to a king, which could be more common folks like grooms and people who made his clothes and his food and stuff like that. But also part of a king's court were his advisors and the, the power families and the royals, people like that. And the people who had access to a king didn't want anybody else to get access to the king because they wanted to be the ones that influenced the king. And there were all these people that didn't have permanent access to a king who wanted access to the king because you wanted your chance to come and ask the king for a favor. Consider this policy. Would, we, would you think about doing this? But you had to be, make sure if you ever got audience with the king and you got through all the people trying to keep you out, you had better word your request in a way that the king knows what you're asking can actually benefit him, can actually benefit the kingdom, or he's not going to do it. This dance, I read this not too long ago. A historian, not a biblical historian, a, a historian of um, ancient Persia. He said that, The court of an ancient king kind of worked like this, this dance of trying to get access and some people trying to keep you from getting access. He said this, The court often functioned like a series of locked rooms with those on the outside always trying different keys and those on the inside constantly changing the locks. Jesus was very much not like that. We're going to see today a picture of Jesus holding court. And Jesus' closest advisors, those ones with permanent access to the king, 
aren't royals. They're not blue bloods. They're not the aristocracy. They're Galilean nobodies. They're fishermen. Uh, We'll see in a couple weeks, a tax collector gets invited to join that club. And then the people who get a chance to come and have an audience with the king, their one-time requests, nobody who comes to see Jesus can do anything for him. He meets with people, throngs of people who can't do a thing for him. And there are people that most ancient kings, none that I know of, would have even allowed in the building where they were. The lowest, the sickest, the outcastestest. Jesus, we'll see again, is the king of kings, has authority over all creation. But he's a king who heals. He's a king who serves. He's a king who grants access. Today, just four verses from Matthew. Um, There's a couple of lessons that I think are just for you and me. I hope at least one of these just speaks to your heart this morning. And then we see Jesus holding court at the end. And we learn about, we're reminded again about Jesus, about what he did and why. And that'll take us into uh, our time at the table this morning. I didn't mention this this morning, but when it comes time for communion, we have what's called open communion here. If you, you don't have to be a member here. If you believe that what Jesus did at the cross, he did for you, we invite you to share communion with us this morning while the elements come around. The first lesson I see in this story of Jesus healing Peter's mother-in-law, the first lesson I think we see in that is this. There are no insignificant people to Jesus. To Jesus, there are no insignificant people. I see that in the first verse and a half. It reads pretty simply this way. When, when Jesus entered Peter's house, he saw Peter's mother-in-law. So Peter was married. And his, mom, his wife's mom lived with them. She was lying down, sick with a fever. He touched her hand, and the fever left her. Remember, Matthew doesn't tell his story chronologically. When we read the book of Matthew, we're not reading diary entries, day one, day two, day three. Matthew's a storyteller. He's a great storyteller. In fact, I'll recommend a book for you here by a guy named Kingsbury, 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 I think. It's called Matthew as Story. And it just examines how Matthew arranges his narrative. It's a great book. He's a great storyteller. And good storytelling very often builds the action, right? Builds the, maybe the tension or the excitement. And Matthew does that. We'll see that in a few weeks where he does it. But we're in the middle of the miracle section of Matthew. He groups his miracles just in a couple of chapters here. And we're in a, the last one of a series of three miracles. First one, he healed a leper. Do you remember that story? Here was this guy, the yuckiest of the yucky, the outcastedest of the outcast. Literally like a walking corpse is how he would have been treated. And, and Jesus not only heals him, but he touches him. And instantly he, he's, his skin clears up and he's rejoined to society. And it was just fantastic. And then, then 
The next miracle, last week, a centurion comes to Jesus and, and Jesus heals a centurion servant without ever even going into the area where this guy was. And, and it's like, wow, what could possibly top that? And so maybe with a little anticipation, we turn the page and we read this and Jesus goes into his buddy's house and his mother-in-law's there and she's got a fever and he touches her and she gets better and she gets up and serves dinner. Is that anticlimactic? I think it's supposed to be. I don't want to. I don't want to downplay the power of the miracle. I mean, it's 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 a miracle and it's a big one. Matthew does something in the Greek here with her fever that I'll bet you can relate to. The word, however your Bible translates, that Peter's mother-in-law is lying down in bed. Um, it's from Beblo. I forget the. Uh, Beblemenein is the Greek word. And here's what that means. That, that word means to be thrown down. Have you ever been sick? <laughs> By the way, a fever for us is a symptom. It was the whole disease to them. You ever had a fever? You ever had an illness that threw you down into bed, like body slammed you and gave you the people's elbow and left you there? Right? That's, that's Peter's mind. She's, so she's sick. She's sick, sick. And he just touches her hand and it's just gone, just like that. But what's her name? We're not told. She's anonymous. That's on purpose. Matthew is Peter's friend. He could have found out. He probably knew her name. Probably knew her. There's an anonymous person. And hear me correctly here. As a woman in this society... She was already viewed as less than, insignificant. There's an anonymous woman who's not well off. She's a fisherman's son's mother-in-law. She's a nobody from Nowheresville. And Jesus, she sees her as significant enough to be healed. And God saw this event as significant enough to be preserved for 2,000 years, so you and I are still talking about it today. And I think the, the point of Jesus, this reading about the healing of an insignificant person with an insignificant illness to get up and do insignificant work is to tell us this point. There are no insignificant people to Jesus. That can be hard for us to get through our heads and into our hearts. Because sometimes the idea that the God of the universe, like he doesn't have better things to do than think about me. You ever feel like that? The God of the universe really thinks about, cares about me. Really. That can seem hard to believe, but if you think about it correctly, it makes sense. Because, yes, there are no insignificant people to Jesus, but partly because this, there aren't any real super significant people to Jesus either. Over and over again in the scriptures, we're shown pictures of how God looks at the people who impress us that we think are important and goes, meh. I'll show you a couple from the book of Isaiah. We could do this all day, but I just picked out two. 
First, in the first verse, I'm going to show you the armies of angry nations are collected together. And look how impressed God is with the, the powerful nations that are, that are collected. Isaiah 17, 13 reads this way. Although the peoples roar like the roar of surging waters, when he, that's God, when God rebukes them just with his words, go away. When he rebukes them, they flee far away, driven before the wind like chaff on the hills, like a tumbleweed before a gale. I love that. Powerful, angry armies. Like so much chaff or a tumbleweed. In in Isaiah 40, it's God who reduces rulers to nothing, who makes the judges of the earth meaningless. Scarcely have they been planted, scarcely have they been sown, scarcely has their stock taken root in the earth, but he merely blows on them, and they wither, and the storm carries them away like stubble. There are no insignificant people to Jesus, and there are not super significant people to Jesus. There are people to Jesus. When you get to feeling like God couldn't pay attention to me, God has more important things to think about than me, he would never notice me, and stuff like that, you don't know the God who's revealed in this book. You're twisting the God who is revealed in this book. You don't know the Jesus that Matthew's telling us about. He's a king, but he's a king who cares about regular folks. Because what we consider important, popular, impressive, vital, is like so much chaff to him. And we see Jesus over and over and over again bringing to himself, allowing around himself, picking up, touching, caring about lepers. Women, fishermen, the diseased, the hated, little children. And he did this not to make a point to us that God loves the insignificant. That's not the point. The point is no one's insignificant. Be careful of that sneaky kind of pride I mentioned last week. Where you exaggerate your significance in a negative way. My, my insignificance is too great for God to care about me. My nobodiness makes me nobody that anybody would ever care about and pay attention to. That, that's pride. Listen, you matter to God. God loved you enough that he allowed his son to be crushed, mutilated, killed so that he wouldn't have to be separate from you. That's how much you matter to God. It's the first thing I learned from Jesus' healing of Peter's mother-in-law. Here's the second one. The second lesson we learned just from looking at her and her response to being healed. This is in verse 15, written very simply. Um, Here's what we learned. We're healed to serve. Jesus touched her hand and the fever left her. And then she got up and began to serve them. Something I forgot to look up. I was reminded when Seth was, was reading from the New American Standard. I have no idea why that's singular in some of our Bibles. He began to serve him because the Greek very plainly is plural, but, but whatever. 
This is what is preserved for all time. For the last 2,000 years, God has chosen to have this story be preserved for us. A regular gal healed of a regular illness, and she gets busy doing regular service. And we were just reminded that, that you matter to God so much for Jesus was willing to die for you to cure your greatest problem. Your greatest problem, whether you know it or not, was that you were separate from God. You were separated from God. God, through Jesus Christ, heals your greatest problem. But you were healed to serve. He healed you in order that you might serve Him and serve others. And by the way, almost always the way we serve Him is by serving others. That's what Peter's mother-in-law does here. Jesus felt she was, was significant enough to heal And we've been reading about her act of service for 2,000 years. And what did she do when Jesus healed her? Did she start a ministry that attracted thousands and thousands of people to come and hear her speak and tell about this miracle? No. Did she start a foundation that attracted or that, that, that raised millions of dollars? Jesus healed her and she served dinner. Hospitality. She was significant. So was her service. You are significant. So is what God, so is what God has equipped you to do for someone else in his name. I am I am convinced I am convinced that one of the main things that keeps people like us from serving in the way God would have us serve is because we're waiting for something more significant than what we... We feel like what we could do wouldn't be significant. Nobody would notice. Nobody would show up. It wouldn't be impressive. God thought what this gal did was important enough to preserve in the scriptures for all time. There's no insignificant people. There's no insignificant service if it's done for him. Remember, God's standards of what is great is just completely upside down than the world's. God is impressed with servants. Jesus will say, we'll get there eventually. He who is greatest among you must become your servant. You want to be great? Serve somebody else. Probably. And I say this as somebody that I I do feel like my ministry is to stand up and have people listen to what I say. So I, I, I see the irony in what I'm saying here. But if the main way I serve, supposedly, happens here, I think it's empty. If the main way I serve you is in my office when nobody's around studying through this book to dig out and pray, God, what do your people need to hear? Then that service can be acceptable to God. My guess is, Jesus probably doesn't desire your speaking tour 
or really anything that, that makes people think you're awesome. My guess is that's not what God has for you. This, this woman, again, was remembered for hospitality in her home. She was healed for hospitality. She was healed to help, and I think we all have been. Most of you know Ephesians 2, 8, and 9. A lot of you do. If you don't, it's okay. I'm going to tell you anyway. Ephesians 2, 8, and 9 tells us how we get healed. By grace, you have been saved through faith. That's how we're healed. Believe on the Lord Jesus, and you will be saved. Ephesians 2, 8, and 9. For it is by grace you've been saved through faith. This is not of yourself. It's a gift from God, not by works, so that no one can boast. You were healed, not by anything you did. It wasn't because you did something significant. It's because God loved you. He thought you were significant enough to die for, asked you to believe in Him, caused your heart to change. And when you turn to Him in faith, you were healed of your greatest disease. But listen to what the next verse says. Paul tells us why you were healed. For we are God's handiwork. That could be translated, we are God's masterpiece. That he could take someone like me and turn me into someone who cares about him is is a masterpiece. For we are God's masterpiece, created in Christ Jesus for what? To do good works which God has prepared in advance for us to do. Here's what we're doing as Christians. We understand we are healed, and we're looking for the service He prepared for me. It might not be the service I pick. It might not be the service someone else would make someone else look at me and go, Ooh, look at that guy. That's impressive. That would be what I would pick. But I'm a new creation in Christ, and He prepared service for me. And it will probably look a a lot more like a servant than a star. We were healed to serve. Now in the last two verses of this little passage, this is where Jesus holds court. This is the king in his court right here, where Jesus uses his great power to serve other people. Verse 16 says, when it was evening, many demon-possessed people were brought to him, and he drove out the spirits with a word. He healed all who were sick. In this way, what was spoken by Isaiah the prophet was fulfilled. He took our weaknesses. He carried our diseases. This is an unorthodox king with an unorthodox court allowing people in his presence no other king would allow in the building. We've already seen Jesus' power, authority over the physical world, even down to the cellular level, to heal diseases and make pain go away and stuff like this. He adds to it, we'll see a closer look at this in two weeks, where, where Matthew tells us he can cast out demons with a word. that lets us know he's got authority over the spiritual realm too. He is at the pinnacle of power and authority. But he was sent by God. His marching orders were to come slum it here to serve people. And I love when the Bible tells us what we're supposed to learn just flat out. Because then I know I can't mess it up. 
Matthew tells us all this stuff was happening so that what was spoken about, what Isaiah told us would happen, we could see it happening. He took our weaknesses. He carried our diseases. That's from Isaiah 53. That's just one little sentence. Read with me just a a little longer section of this because I love it so much. This is the New Living Translation. I love what it does with this, uh, this little passage. This is Isaiah 700 years before Jesus was ever born. Telling us when Messiah showed up, he would not only be king, he would be a, a suffering servant. Here's how Isaiah described him. There was nothing beautiful or majestic about his appearance. Nothing physical that would attract us to him. He was despised and rejected. A man of sorrows, acquainted with deepest grief. We turned our backs on him and looked the other way. He was despised and we didn't even care. Yet it was our weaknesses that he carried. It was our sorrows that weighed him down. We thought his troubles were a punishment from God, a punishment for his own sins. Verse 5, but he was pierced for our rebellion. He was crushed for our sins. He was beaten so we could be made whole. He was whipped so we could be healed. All of us, like sheep, have strayed away. We have left God's paths to follow our own. Yet the Lord laid on him the sins of us all. God decided he wanted us saved to demonstrate his grace. So he gives Jesus, the Son of God, his marching orders. Hey, go down there and slum it with, those, with the sinners. And Jesus, though he is at the pinnacle of power and authority, his marching orders are to serve others in ways that won't make him look awesome. What will it make Jesus look like? Despised. Rejected. He was beaten so we could be made whole. He was whipped so we could be healed. He was made unclean that we might become clean. He was made sin to remove ours. Here's what we learned from this this morning. First, the great King Jesus still considers just regular people significant. He loves you. He died for you. He will heal you of your greatest ailment if you will come to him. Your greatest problem is your sin has separated you from a holy and righteous God. Paul tells us he became our sin. So that God could punish our sin in him. But if we'll believe in him, we will not perish. We have, we'll have everlasting life because our sin's been paid for. We've already been punished just in him. Has he healed you? Have you been healed by the blood of the lamb? Listen, if you have, he heals people so that we can serve. He healed us for a purpose, not just to be with him someday, but to walk with him today. And if we walk with him, we will serve other people. 
encourage, strengthen, pray for, pray with, befriend, to show hospitality to, to sit with, to mentor, to help. Just think about this logically for one last second. If Jesus' marching orders, and he was God, was to come down here, lower yourself, be obedient, and serve others. Do you think we would get that much different marching orders than what God gave his own son? I mean, think about that. If God told his son, get down there, get dirty, and serve those people, what would make us think we don't get the same kind of orders when we become God's children through faith? Praise God, we have been healed. But we were healed for a purpose. We were blessed to be a blessing. We were served to become servants. If you ever want to be great in God's eyes, find someone to serve. And it doesn't have to be significant. It doesn't have to be popular. It doesn't have to, it just has to be something for someone. Because Jesus served me. Pray with me. Heavenly Father, thank you for this just simple story about a simple gal who had a simple disease. And you touched her on the hand, her fever left, and she got up and served. God, we desire, we desire like revival in our nation. We desire um, you know, that millions would be saved around the globe. But we're reminded that happens when simple folks get healed and serve in your name, just where they're at. God, remove from us the pride that says you can't care about us because we're too insignificant. That's a lie from hell. And remove from us the pride that says what I can't do won't matter enough. Make us servants in the model of our Savior who served us through obedience to death, even death on a cross. In Jesus' name, amen. You know, as we approach the table, you know, I, I certainly didn't plan that this sermon would be on Communion Sunday. The, uh, the snow day planned that for us. But I'm so glad. Uh, Matthew quotes that Isaiah, he carried our weaknesses. Right? He took our disease on himself. And is, is that not what Jesus was here for? Not just to cure people temporarily, because everyone he healed physically was still going to die and then someday stand before him again. And this would be the question, have you been healed of your greatest disease? Because he came to carry our greatest disease on his body, on the tree. When we do, when we do this, we're, we're just doing a picture of the gospel. He carried our sin, our shame. He paid our debt. And when we put these elements inside of us, what we're saying is, I, like, I, want, I want to be so about that. I want that message inside of me. I'm ingesting that. Have you been healed? If you have, Jesus invites you to remember what he did to carry your disease, to become your sin. 
always share this. As the guys come forward to help me uh, pass this out. Lord Jesus, I thank you so much that when you came to earth, you came to serve, not to be served, but to serve. And you served us in the only way that could reconcile us to God by becoming our sin and dying our death. And it is our privilege to remember you and that act this morning. Commune with us as we remember what you did for us to carry our infirmities, our weakness, our disease, our sin. It's in faith we depend upon you to make us clean and whole. You were beaten so we could be free. You were unclean so we could be clean. You became our sin so we could be your righteousness.